So it may not look like it to you, but as teachers, we're also on a kind of retreat. Um, the form is a little different, admittedly. We do get to go out and about much more, hopefully, than you do. Um, but we're here uh, practicing, you know, doing our own practice, uh, working out how best to work with the conditions that present themselves here. We're obviously thinking about your practice and how to support you. And so there's a lot of discussion we have about practice and different ways of practicing. And, uh, you know, in the role we're in, also, of course, exposed to outside influences, um, you know, other teachers, people who come through the, cent- the various centers. And I've just been reading my copy of Tricycle magazine. I mean, if you know it, it's a, a Buddhist magazine and it comes out monthly or whatever. And it covers all of the traditions and just flipping through it. It's like all of these articles by different people and these beautiful shots of retreat centers and smiling people saying, you know, come practice with us. And it's like, how do you decide? You know, it's no wonder we get confused when there's just such an array of options for us to consider if we're on a, a Dharma path. And so it, there can be a lot of confusion about this. You know, what's the right path, the right practice? And we often want to just be told, you know, this is what will work for you. This is the best teacher. This is the best practice. This is the best retreat center. And just to kind of have that sense of someone else worrying about all this. But it's not that simple, is it? Because if we did tell you that, you'd probably say, no, you know, who are you to tell me? I, you, you don't know what's best for me. So we're kind of caught between uh, these two places of sometimes really wanting to be told, you know, just do this. And at other times, wanting that, that breadth of opportunity or choices that there are. But here, at least, you have made some decisions. You know, you've come here to IMS to do this style of practice, this group of people uh, as teachers. But within that, of course, there's still this huge array of choices. Um, and James talked about this the other night, and I could tell you all relating. You know, should I do Vipassana or Metta? Should I be expansive or really focused? Should I do this style of practice or that style of practice? What about now? What about tomorrow? What should I do? You know, what what will really help me? What's the most? What's the best thing to do? And under all of that, basically, is what's the quickest thing to do? What's the way I can get there the most quickly? Get out of this experience and get to this other imagined experience of not suffering. That's basically what we're looking for. So we're always kind of evaluating in that way. When we get caught in that kind of thinking, I think the best thing to do is to, to back up and really look at the big picture. And in the big picture, all those questions I just kind of raised it doesn't matter. We don't like to hear that, but truly, six months from now, a year from now, will it have mattered whether you focused in in a sitting or got spacious or paid attention to sounds or, or your knee? You know, it doesn't matter. We don't like to hear that. You mean, what do you mean it doesn't matter? It matters to me. You know? But truth be told, it's really important to step back a bit from practice at times And as I think I said in another talk, to to look at really what we're developing rather than the immediate experience and to what end, what's our intention or aspiration in practice. And to some degree, is it working? Is it going in the direction we want to go? 
Uh, and in saying that, I don't want to cause a lot of evaluating because that's not helpful. You know, in a retreat, we often can't know uh, the effects of our practice and and uh, really, you know, what what we've experienced here and how it will play out in our lives. But we can have a certain sense. You know, is is are we going in the direction of more openness or connectedness or kindness, a steadiness of practice in those simple ways? So this question of to what end or evaluating is a slippery, it's a, a knife edge really to explore of how to do it wisely. I was thinking about this kind of like if you, you know, you have your fa- favorite cold remedy. We all do, you know, whether echinacea or golden seal or uh, vitamin C or Zycam. And so you're taking it hoping not to get sick. Well, if you don't get sick, does it mean it didn't work or you just didn't get sick? You didn't catch a cold. You don't know. And if you do get sick, did it not work? Or were the symptoms perhaps less than if you didn't take it? You can't really know, can you? So you, you can't evaluate it on just the sort of moment-to-moment experience, but only by kind of the big picture. Did you, did you tend to get fewer colds in a season or maybe over even some years? That's the only way we can really tell is if we step back a bit and, and look at our practice in this bigger context, these these maps that the Buddha um, loved to talk about that give us some kind of guidelines so we can have a sense of what we're actually developing here and, and are those qualities manifesting in some way in our lives, in our experience. <coughs> Excuse me. So there are these different maps of practice. I talked a little bit the other day about... Um, one particular map, the seven factors of enlightenment, a really helpful map for intensive practice, the qualities that we develop in meditation and how to strengthen and bring, bring them into balance. Another map is the Eightfold Path, which you could see is an even bigger uh, time span. It's like a, a life of practice. It's really all of the things, the factors that we need to develop as we go through our lives. One of the biggest pictures of all of these Uh, maps of practice is the map of the paramis, the perfections, these ten qualities that it is said that the Buddha-to-be developed over lifetimes, countless thousands of lifetimes, developing all these different qualities on his way to Buddhahood. And it was that those experiences that prepared his mind for awakening um, in his life as Siddhartha Gautama. And Carol spoke about one of these factors the other night, a little bit about the paramis, the factor of determination. You know, that factor of just go do it. You know, don't, if we sit around like a blob, we're not going to cultivate anything. Well, I get, you know, we actually need to realize we're always cultivating something. We're just cultivating couch potato-ness or whatever qualities of mind are in sitting around like a blob. But we want to, you know, if we're going to cultivate something, let's make it something that we want to cultivate. So determination is that factor that really gathers together the energy to put in the time to practice whatever it is we're looking to cultivate. What's interesting about the paramis is I find for myself, each one that I choose to talk about, it seems like that's the most important. You know, if you talk about generosity or virtue or um, renunciation or wisdom or truthfulness, they all seem so important that that's the essential one. But I think uh, my good friend Sylvia Borstein uh, has the wisest response to this. 
her, she's written a lot about the, the paramis, wrote a, whole, wrote a whole book about it and often teaches about it. And her basic uh, theme is that each parami is a permutation of the others. And as you practice or talk about or cultivate one, you're practicing and talking about and cultivating all of the others. So I think that's actually a, a really skillful way to look at it, that in perfecting one, we're actually bringing all of the others along. And the one that I want to talk about tonight is the parami of patience. Kanti is the, the Pali word. And hopefully you'll see as I talk about it, it's strong connection to the determination that Carol spoke about, but also how the other factors are also uh, woven through this quality of patience and how necessary it is for our practice of mindfulness. That patience is really um, an important quality to develop if we're going to be on this path of practice. And patience is essential on a retreat like this, on a long retreat of many weeks and months. And in fact, there's a way you could view us all, you all, as patients. <laughs> you all are all patients. And I've, I've joked a few times, people have come in, you know, when you're sitting up there waiting for your interview, it's like the waiting room, isn't it, in the hospital? And you're all there with your different maladies of mind and body and... We're like Lucy with the sign, the doctor is in, you know, five cents. It's about, well, I won't go there. Um, and it's true. And I looked at the, the word patient is actually derived from the Latin pati, which means to suffer. And here we are, you know, I think I joked about it being a dukkha factory. Well, here we are, patients in the, the suffering factory. Um, looking to get better, looking to be healed. That's what we're doing here. There's this great story from um, probably in the late 70s, I think it was, when uh, Ajahn Chah came to visit IMS. And he came during a three-month retreat. He wasn't teaching it, but he, he gave some teachings and was around for, for some time. And uh, it was at a time when the practice here at IMS was very serious. People walking very slowly. There was a lot of effort being put in, really a strong practice um, ethic going on. And Ajahn Chah and his monasteries, his style of practice was much more um, relaxed, more of a lifestyle, just sort of continuous gentle mindfulness, not so much formal intensive practice. And so he was a little bemused by seeing all these people walking around so glumly. And the story is that, you know, people were outside doing their walking and he started going up to each one and saying this little phrase in Thai. He'd bow a little and say a little phrase, and everyone was you know, so delighted. Ajahn Chah is blessing me. What is he saying? What is he saying? So finally, in the hall, after he left, they said, you know, he came up and said this. What was he saying? And it turned out what he was saying is, may you get well soon. May you get well soon. So here we are, patients in the, the hospital, waiting to get well. So... This quality, though, of patience, the parami of patience, is not one that certainly this culture values very much, and it's not one perhaps even we personally know much about. It's such a fast-paced society. It, you know, if you're a little slow, you're just left in the dust these days. And, I mean, it's so amusing to me that for this 
the current young generation, email is too slow. It's like, that's old people stuff. We, we text and instant mess, you know, it's got to be instant. Email takes, what, 30 seconds or a few minutes? It's, no, it's got to be instant. And another, you know, it doesn't happen so much these days, but one of the running jokes is um, the mail that used to come to IMS and the different forms that people would, when IMS wasn't such a well-known name, one of the names would often be on the envelope was Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> because that's what, again, that's what people, how do I get there? The Instant Meditation Society. And whether you're here for six weeks or three months, though, you can see, not Instant Meditation Society, is it? It's actually quite a slow process. And however long you're here for, you can get a sense, perhaps not long enough, not long enough to do the work that we need to do. A group of us actually just uh, went over to the Forest Refuge this afternoon and visited with Paok Sayadaw, this very um, revered meditation master. He's teaching a four-month retreat over there, and his main, well, his practice, his real pra- his practice that he teaches is deep states of concentration. And so we asked him, how's the retreat going? And he sort of shook his head a little, goes, four months not long enough for most people. Some people, getting it, most people not long enough. And so I asked him, you know, what, what, what do you think the problem is? You know, what, what makes the difference? And he just sort of shook his head, too much thinking, <laughs> too much speculative thinking. So I thought we were all going, yes, as Westerners, you know, we think too much. Yeah. I said, but for Burmese people, four months, okay? And he goes, no, not for Burmese people either. Six months or one year necessary. <laughs> That's a big picture of practice and what it takes. Luckily, we don't have quite such an elevated goal for our practice as he does. But when we think about patience, it's often not something that gets us very excited. You know, we have a, our memory of, of being told, be patient. You know, as you're waiting for Christmas or your birthday, when is it coming, when is it coming, be patient. The classic, of course, is the family vacation, piling in the, the car and trying to get somewhere to your grandparents' house or whatever. When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the parents turning around, just be patient. I'm from a family of six kids, so I can't imagine how my parents survived. They were the ones practicing patience with getting us all in a car and going somewhere. So that's the kind of sense we have about it, you know, be patient. We're told to sit down and shut up and and just wait, wait for what it is we want to happen. It's not here yet. But I'm sure you've seen, unless you've developed some degree or other of patience, retreats are really challenging. Nothing slower than a sitting when you're just waiting for the bell to ring or out there in the walking period you look at oh I won't look at my watch I won't look at my watch and seven minutes have gone by you know it's like it's if, if there's that sense of wanting to get to the next thing it can seem interminable so we have to learn how to bring patience to this experience how to actually meet the moment fully with this sense of acceptance. True patience isn't just kind of apathetic, though, or indifferent, kind of just getting through moment after moment to make it to the next one. But when we're talking about patience, 
there is some acknowledgement that there's difficulty, that there is some challenge, whether it's internal or external, because the very concept of patience is necessarily related to some sense of time and some sense of challenge. If one or the other of those two aren't there, then patience just doesn't need to arise. We don't talk about being patient with our joy or our bliss, do we? Or when you're having a great meditation, or when is it going to be over? We don't worry about that. It's, so there's some difficulty there that we're acknowledging. But also time is really um, essential. If we weren't concerned about time, if we weren't always toppling into the future, if time was irrelevant, patience would be irrelevant. But it's really tied up with our concept of time and wanting to get there more quickly, wanting whatever is not here. And so can see if you take away the concept of difficulty or take away the concept of time, then no room for impatience or needing to develop patience. But most of the time, we are somehow enmeshed in that uh, situation a lot of the time. Challenging experience of mind or body, some resistance, and some sense of wanting it to be over, wanting something else to happen. The dictionary definition of patience is bearing or enduring pain, difficulty, provocation, or annoyance with calmness. And calmness is the key term there. doesn't matter what the difficulty is. It's only when we bring some degree of calm or tolerance or some willingness to be with experience that patience is being developed. Because it's not just putting up with things. It's not just putting up with things until they get better, but this sense of constancy and equanimity, which is another of the paramis, another of the factors we can develop. Sharon Salzberg in her book, A Heart as Wide as the World, says that true patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to meet this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it will be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. I thought that was really interesting. The Buddha said, the highest austerity, meaning, you know, again, this is the renunciation, another parami, this, this willingness to be with simplicity and the highest form of devotion. To see patience as a form of devotion in our willingness to be present with something, we really give ourselves to that. It's that kind of devotion. So to fully experience patience, it's not just a mental attitude. There's some physical component. It's a full body experience. It's often about just taking that breath that says, yes, can I meet this? Can I open to this? Can I be with this? 
It's about a commitment to being present with, with this degree of acceptance and taking whatever time it takes to see things clearly, to meet the moment. And again, looking at our life here on retreat, what else are we waiting for? It's just another moment to be aware of. You know, it's just something else to be mindful of. But we have this tendency of impatience, of toppling forward into the future. And to see again and again, this practice is about settling back, coming into this moment and being present. And this is what patience allows us to do. It allows us to develop what we call the long-enduring mind. And this is this big picture that I was speaking about that's so helpful. It's not looking for instant gain or instant fix because we know it's not like that. It's always slower than we would wish. I heard one person define spiritual practice as a constant lowering of expectations. I'm sure you've gotten there a little by now, five weeks in, like all our grand ideas. Can we just be with this, just with this? This phrase, long enduring mind, is actually strongly associated with a Chinese monk called uh, Zhu Yong. And uh, he was born in 1840, and he lived for 120 years. His, uh, he wrote a, a biography which has been translated and is available called Empty Cloud. I read it a little while ago. It's fascinating. It's not very long. He skips a lot of years because there's a lot of years, 120 <laughs> years. But he, you know, every now and then he gives some detail. Uh, he, you know, born in 1840, a, a son. The family really wanted him to be, you know, take on the family role of, of leader of the family, and he wanted to practice. So he kept running away to practice, and they would bring him back. And finally, he ran far enough away, and he ran into the mountains, and he talked about two, three-year stretches where he just lived in the mountains, in caves, on the hillsides. The second three-year period, he said, um, for the next three, this was in his late 20s, for the next three years, I ate grass and pine needles, which basically means led a very austere life, and I drank water from the mountain streams. After a while, my shoes wore out, as did my trousers. I was left with only a tattered robe. As my hair and my beard and hair had grown over a foot in length, I tied them up in a knot. I did not speak to anybody, as they were frightened by my piercing bright eyes. They ran off thinking I was a kind of mountain spirit. During the third year, I just wandered about on the mountains, eating wild herbs. Time had slipped away from my mind. And he described all of these blissful experiences and altered states because he was out there, boy. He was really out there. And he was quite ecstatic. I mean, he really got to this place of ecstasy. But he, got, he did bump into some other fellow seekers, and he heard about this master who was really greatly revered. So he made his way down off the mountain to meet this master. And he said, this is what he said, I told him my story. And he asked, who had told me to practice like this? I said, because enlightenment was, was reached using these method, methods amongst the ancients, so I followed them. Next he said, well, you know how to, how to discipline the, bo- the body, but how about the mind? He continued, you have wasted 10 years of training. You are completely on the wrong path. 
wouldn't you be a little bummed out? <laughs> what Zhu Yong said is, he just immediately said, tell me the right way. Tell me how to practice. And the master said, well, if I tell you, you have to do exactly as I say. And he said, yes, immediately. He just dropped his wandering and entered the monastery and practiced. I mean, it's just amazing. Again and again, he describes uh, experiences like that. So here he is in his late 20s. He got enlightened at age 56 after 20 years of intensive practice. And that's when he started teaching. He also described many pilgrimages that he did on foot, often every three steps doing a full prostration. He traveled through Tibet, India, and Burma, all on foot, and you know, all kinds of adventures. He lived through all of the upheavals of that time in China, ending with the communist revolution where Buddhism was, they tried to eradicate it, it was beaten many, many times. And he was instrumental in helping Buddhism to survive in China till the very end. It was said at age 118, he was beaten by uh, the communists trying to get him to give up his ways. He survived and lived for another two years. It's just amazing. So we may not quite have the long enduring mind of Zhu Yong, but we can see the benefit or the necessity of this kind of attitude in our practice, this kind of ability to recognize it's not an instant fix. It's not something that's going to happen immediately. And of course, you know, we talk about gradual cultivation, immediate awakening. The awakening does happen in the moment. It's the only place it can happen. But we need to prepare the ground. So we benefit from this practice of patience. We benefit from our own practice. And of course, we're the, we're the beneficiaries of other people's patience, the Buddha's patience. All of those thousands of lifetimes that he cultivated the quality of patience as well as the other paramis. Even in his lifetime as the Buddha, again, I've talked about being on pilgrimage, reading the the texts, and they would often say, and so the Buddha walked by stages to Uruvela. It's 200 miles. You know, he would just go walk for six weeks to get somewhere. Imagine all the discourses, the the teachings he gave, some people understood and many didn't. He kept teaching his whole life. I think of all my teachers and their patience and the years of practice that they did that I benefited from. It's just amazing. And of course, not just uh, in the spiritual path. You just have to appreciate the people who plant trees. Many, uh, you know, they won't live to see the tree grow to maturity. Trees take hundreds of years sometimes to just have that sense of the patience, the, the trust that it takes to do something like that or to build a retreat center. Many people who contributed and donated and helped to pl- build a place like this or Spirit Rock often won't be around when Spirit Rock or IMS is still functioning. But they had that sense of patience, of, of taking, knowing that these things take time. We uh, went for a hike just yesterday in the woods around here, and of course, I'm sure you've all seen the, the remnants of when this was farmed land and the stone walls that are just everywhere here throughout 
the woods. I mean, what, I just read recently that the Northeast has become one of the most valuable carbon sinks on the planet because of this reforestation that's happening when people finally realized North, New England is not the best place to farm. You know, it has its challenges. But, you, you know, you look at these stone walls and you imagine those lives of the people that you met. You know, they had a lever, a piece of iron or wood, and a mule. And they cleared these fields and, and built these stone walls. They didn't build them for fun or just to make a wall. They built them to get them out of the field so they could plow the fields. What kind of minds did those people have to have? Well, you hope patience, often some despair, I think. I mean, it was a challenging life, but just to get a sense of that steadiness, that, you know, to do that kind of work with this idea of what would come in the future. So everywhere in our lives, we have the opportunity to practice patience. It's not just about our spiritual practice or here on retreat. Anytime you're around children, whether you have them or you're just borrowing them, it's another whole world that you enter into to be around children. I, I saw a New Yorker cartoon a while ago. It was, showed a, a woman walking down a busy street and she had these four, you know, you could see the mouths were all open in different array, crying, demanding children, hanging on her skirt. And she was carrying one of those signs, you know, like the guys with the apocalyptic sign. But her sign said, the end of my patience is near. <laughs> you know, as a parent, you, you have to give up whatever your idea of time is to be with a child, to, to get on that kind of um, their agenda, to be with them really openly. You know, think of going for a walk with a small child. You know, you have to keep moving, you know, keep up the pace, we've got to get somewhere. It's like to see the world through a child's eyes or taking a dog for a walk. I mean, if you really want to take a dog for a walk, you can't have an agenda. Let the dog have some fun and, and just let go of that sense of, of impatience. Anytime you've done any renovation on your house, you know, it's always twice as long and twice as much money as you thought it was going to be, isn't it? You, you, we, it doesn't matter how many times I hear that, you always expect, like, the renovation, the work here. Oh, it'll be a week or so, and how long we've given up counting, you know? It's, it's just, it's always longer than you think, so we have to just stay with it. An area that I've used to be very um, seemed a bigger deal than it is now. Haircuts, you know, you get a haircut. They gave you the wrong cut. It's too short. It's this. It's that. It's like, oh no! And now it's like it's going to grow. You know, it's not such a big deal. For some reason or another, guy likes me to cut his hair. I'm not a trained hairdresser, I'm not that great at it, but I do cut his hair. And I've learned there's one thing you don't want your hairdresser or your surgeon to say, and that's, whoops. <laughs> but it usually happens, you know, there's, you're trying to balance one side or the other side, and it's a little shorter here, and, oh, okay. and he always has to say, stop now, because I'm not But I... I have my teaching that I give to him every time. What's the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut? Two weeks. <laughs> so now he's, he's learned that about uh, haircuts. 
waiting in line. How many times do we find ourselves just standing waiting? I know here, you know, the food line, it's, it seems like people are lining up earlier and earlier. If you want to get there, you have to kind of get there earlier and earlier. And it's gaming the food line, you know, which line is going to move faster. And, and it somehow becomes, it says something about you. You know, when you're in a supermarket, a Costco is the worst, of course, when people have those, the big, what do you call it, bulk buying place, where the big, you know, full of, full of, um, big, uh, what do you call them, trolleys full of stuff. And you look at the line and you choose a line and it's always, dang, I chose the wrong line. Why does it always seem I choose, chose the wrong line? Well, it can't be true. We can't all choose the wrong line. Someone has to be in the right line. Sometimes we're in the right line, but it always seems because we have impatience about how long the line should take. We're looking, you know, who's likely to bring out the coupons or, you know, pay by check or returning something. And so we can't just be there. We want, you know, and then you see that impatience, lack of patience is all about this isn't okay. I can't be here for this experience, and somehow it's reflecting on me that I've chosen the wrong line to be in. And here on retreat, it is the ultimate place to really develop this quality of patience, to be with a difficult mind state, to just be present through a sitting when it's not going quite the way we want it to go, or it's taking longer than we think it should the patience it needs to be on a long retreat like this, minute after minute, hour after hour. Because patience actually allows us to be present, to be present out in our lives while we're standing in line, you know, that it's not just getting through something to get somewhere else. That's so much the attitude we have. I need to get through this, this line, the supermarket, so I can get to what's really important, instead of just being here and now. And so patience allows us to do that. It allows us to actually be with things as they are, to see things as they are, not wishing them to be different. talked about that the other day. So you can see from this how essential it is for mindfulness, that mindfulness is a practice of patience, of just staying with our experience without wishing it away wanting it to be different, and actually connecting with it. Shantideva was that um, sage who wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's a whole discourse, a set of teachings on uh, the Mahayana paramis. There are only six in in, um, the Mahayana. And he has this uh, few verses on patience. Those who cause me suffering are like Buddhas bestowing their blessings. Since they lead me to liberating paths, why should I get angry with them? Don't they obstruct your virtuous practice? No. There is no virtuous practice greater than patience. Therefore, I will never get angry with those who cause me suffering. If, because of my own shortcomings, I do not practice patience with my enemy, It is not he but I who prevents me from practicing patience. Because of my own shortcomings, I do not practice patience with my difficult person. It is she, not I, who prevents me from practicing patience. 
So it's not the circumstances that are making us impatient or making patience impossible. It's our internal relationship and all of the barriers that we have developed to prevent, that prevent us from just being okay with things as they are. And of course, the obvious barrier is impatience, is that interesting blend of aversion and desire. Aversion, we don't like what's happening, and we're not getting something else quickly enough. You know, it's that difficulty plus time. This is the the, uh, mathematical equation for impatience. So it's really interesting to look. If you find you're experiencing impatience, whether it's in a moment, you know, waiting for something, waiting for your interview, waiting in line, waiting for a, a meditation period to be over, what's actually happening? What's actually unpleasant in the situation? And of course, there may be some real challenge of mind and body, but often it is this perception that it should be over, that the end isn't here yet, whatever it is, and that kind of toppling forward and not, not, not uh, settling into being here. And of course, impatience is a theme of modern life. You know, this culture thrives on efficiency and speed, and we've, we just get so used to it. You know, if a web page takes 10 seconds to load, like that's way too slow. I've got to get the information. I've got to get this news that I need to hear, and it's instant everything. I, I found this web page that just documented all of the different variations of drive-throughs there are now. You know, America is the land of drive-throughs, and it used to be just first food, and then it became banks. Well, apparently there are, you know, churches, little things you can drive through and get some prayers. In Las Vegas, you can do drive-through weddings. And this one, I have a photo of it, so I presume it's true, you never know. Drive-through funerals. You know, they had a little room open with a casket, and you pay your respects, and on you go. Who can take the time, you know? So to see how impatience is... The, the, it just fosters so many other unwholesome mind states. It's so unpleasant, actually, to be impatient, isn't it? It's such a restless kind of feeling. I have that whole talk about restlessness. You can really see how they're related. You know, one of the classic places is at the airport when, a flight, when the flights start getting delayed. You know, it's like this almost hell realm of frustrated people you know, on their phones and texting and at the counters yelling and, and uh, demanding that things be changed. And the poor people on the other end, they're not in control of the weather in Chicago or Detroit or whatever it is that's happening. And so much anger and, and uh, challenge that gets vented at them. I can remember um, many years ago, I was actually meant to fly from San Francisco to here to teach. It was my first retreat I was formally teaching, and I was flying with Christopher Titmus. He'd invited me to teach with him. We got to the airport nice and early, early morning flight to Boston, and our flight was delayed three hours. And I was like, no, no, it can't be. We've got to get there. Start of the retreat. I'm with Christopher. He's got to get there. We've got to get there. What will happen? And I was racing around, calling, you know, can we fly into Hartford or go through Detroit instead of Chicago? You know, what can we do? And Christopher's just basically, let's go get breakfast. (laughs) 
you know, it was just so interesting. I was kind of frantic trying mainly to get him there. It didn't matter so much about me. And he was just, let's go get breakfast. And, you know, we got here. We got here in time. It was such a teaching. And I'm sure you've all heard stories of people on planes, you know, the plane lands and someone gets up immediately and they say, no, no, sit down. I read a story of a woman who the plane landed and she wanted, so wanted to be first off. She got up and started getting her stuff. They say, sit down, sit down. She wouldn't, she wouldn't. Well, they ended up, you know, arresting her. She did not get first. She might have been first off the plane, but she did not get to wherever she wanted to go quickly. And it, you really see when that, that impatience grips people, all wisdom goes out of the mind. This, this wanting to get wherever they think they want to get. Another way we can experience a barrier to patience on retreat is just the experience of resistance, of not wanting whatever it is that's happening. It's just a permutation of impatience, but resistance. So they're very connected, and I, I know this experience so well. Resistance is, is something I've really had to work with, you know, and it, it's sort of crazy-making because here we are on retreat, resisting being on retreat, especially a long retreat. It's just suffering, isn't it? And for me, I would experience a lot in the walking because, you know, I, I have such a clear memory. I'd always try to walk outside, walking down to the my meditation path. I'd always go down by the the garden there, the orchard, and, and walk to and just feel that heaviness as I was going down there. And, you know, my body was going and my mind was pulling, pulling away. And I'd get down there and, you know, I'd look like I was walking, but really I was looking to escape. You know, how could I not be here? And I'd see the planes going overhead and I go, I wonder where they're going. It's like <laughs> Miami, you know, Chicago, anywhere seemed better than being here. And so I'd have these fantasies of not being here. And I really had to look at what I was doing because it was so much suffering because I was still here. I wasn't going anywhere. But I really saw that the resistance was all in the pleasure of the temporary fantasy of actually not being here, which just magnified the suffering of being here. It actually deepened the suffering. And I, would, I was giving into this momentary satisfaction and actually deepening my suffering. Again, my uh, favorite philosopher, Calvin, of Calvin and Hobbes said, there's nothing better to make a bad day worse than to spend it wishing for the impossible. And that's what I was doing, you know, wishing not to be here. I was here. And I remember talking to my wise teacher, Carol, at the time, and she just said in her Carol way, that's just a habit. Just a habit. But I realized that it was. It was just a tendency of mind that I had bought into so much, and that trek down to my walking place would just trigger it, and I would buy into it every time, and I would suffer every time. And when I saw it as a habit, and by habit, you know, a big part of that is just a, a, a repetition of thought accompanied by a certain feeling in the body. I could work with it then. I could see I don't need to follow that pattern, follow that habit of mind. And I saw how it caused me suffering. You know, and I can't say that it instantly disappeared, but there was some big shift through just recognizing that the resistance and the impatience around the walking was the suffering. 
And I, could I do the walking without that added? Whenever we have expectations, patients can't develop because we have some idea of how things should be and always some subtext, whether we're aware of it or not, of how quickly they should come about. We have an agenda. We have a timeline. It's five weeks now. I should be X or Y or not B or C. You know, we have some idea. So it doesn't allow us to just be where we are. We've talked a lot about letting go of agenda and the balancing. You know, it's helpful to have aspiration. It's not helpful to have agendas that say, I should be experiencing something else. We are where we are in our retreat. And then patience and equanimity really can develop and go together. So as we bring the wisdom in, and here's another parami, the wisdom that just sees there's nowhere else to be but here. If we're always toppling into the future, we're both not there yet and not here for what's happening right now, even if it's difficult, even if it's challenging. So we cultivate this parami of patience and it allows us to see and be fully present when things are difficult or not exciting, when things are actually just fairly simple. And as I've said to so many of you, on a long retreat, we will all have periods where things are not that exciting. Be thankful for those experiences. It's actually a a good sign of, of practice and just quietening in mind and body. But we're so used to, you know, the drama, wanting uh, either great insights or catharsis that we don't fully trust that. But this patient mind that's okay with the simplicity, okay with connecting with what's difficult, allows us to fully be there, see the nuances, see the details, see the unfolding. And a big part of of our practice is being with this experience, connecting with it, and then seeing what happens next out of that relationship, out of our mindfulness or interest or investigation. You know, again, what, what is being developed? So patience allows us to actually be there for that that progression. Again, in one of my earlier talks, I talked about these three mind moments that we recognize what had happened, we bring mindfulness into the present moment, we respond in some way, hopefully wisely, and then we're aware of what's next, what's being cultivated, you know, what, what, what is happening in the mind. Patience allows us to be there for that, to just that full body presence of just willingness to keep showing up. There's a way in which patience honors the truth of things. As we develop this steady constancy, this continuity of presence, we can see the truth of things that we keep pointing to again and again. Impermanence. We see the ways we cause our own suffering through whether it's our resistance or impatience. We see that by paying attention, by looking at our experience over time. And we start to see this bigger picture. You know, Andrea talked about one of the maps, the dependent origination, 
how there's just this arising and passing of all of these different experiences. And if we cling, we'll suffer. The patient mind sees that, sees that big picture, and starts to be willing to let go a little, to not so be caught in that that wheel of arising, of dependent origination, over and over again. So in this way, it's really related to um, wisdom and equanimity. St. Augustine said, patience is the companion of wisdom. Wisdom is another of the paramis. So wisdom and equanimity. Patience allows us to develop equanimity and deepen in wisdom. And these are the highest states that we're practicing for. Wisdom and equanimity. This is what it's all about. Shanti Deva again said, Why be unhappy with something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? This is the essence of patience. You probably, in hearing that, it's so much like what's become known as the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. You could substitute patience in there. The patience to accept things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So patience, you can see, is woven throughout our practice here. That vipassana, to see clearly, requires this depth of patience, this steadiness, this constancy, that's not just gritted teeth and waiting for things to be over, but a real willingness to engage with our experience when it's difficult, when it's challenging, and to not be so lost in the past or toppling into the future, to be impatient, waiting for the next thing, wanting something different, but actually some how here and now, and to start to explore this direct felt sense of patience. You've all probably had the experience, but it makes a difference when you name it. I've talked with a lot of you about that, especially when we find that there are these qualities developing that are the ones we're looking for, to be really willing to name calm, or equanimity, or quiet, or peace, or patience. The naming helps orient us, helps us to clearly recognize what this experience is like. And so we come to know it in the mind and the body, not, as I said, just as an attitude, but this mountain-like almost experience, this of using the breath just to say yes, to this experience, yes to here, yes to now, and to recognize the other good qualities that come with it, of peace, of calm, of equanimity and wisdom, of seeing clearly. These all come with patience. Mary Oliver has this wonderful poem about the development of patience and its nature. It's called Stanley Kunitz, and he's another fellow poet um, of hers, 
a friend and actually her neighbor who was a gardener. And so this is her poem about him. I used to imagine him coming, coming from the house like Merlin, who's a magician, strolling with important gestures through the garden where everything grows for so thickly, where birds sing, little snakes lie on the boughs, thinking of nothing but their own good lives, where petals float upward, their colors exploding, and trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth, and know my vision for a falsehood. Now I see him coming from the house. I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. Like the human child I am, I rush to imitate. I watch him as he bends among the leaves and vines to hook some weed or other. Even when I do not see him, I think of him there, raking and trimming, stirring up these sheets of fire between the smothering weights of earth, the wild and shapeless air. The patience it requires to garden, but I think she's really talking about the patience it requires to be fully human, to be fully present, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience. It's a description of our life of practice the hour of fulfillment or the moment of awakening. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it is not magic, that it is something that we can practice, cultivate, incline towards. And with true patience, developing this parami of patience, all of these good qualities come to flower, come to fruition of constancy, of mindfulness, of peace and calm and equanimity and wisdom as we continue just simply showing up, simply willing to be present for this moment and the next with acceptance and with kindness. So let's just sit together for a moment.
Oh, what good it does the heart to know it is not magic, that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience. Thank you for patiently listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.